This being our normal Sunday evening puja, as some of you have joined us just for tonight and and 20 or so of the rest of us have uh, been here on retreat since Friday evening. And been very blessed with the weather and I'll find out tomorrow what you thought of the mattresses. <laughs> Hope you've been okay. Seems like uh, everybody's been making good use of the time. And it really feels like a very fortunate opportunity that we have. I feel myself very, very glad when, when occasions like this can take place and people can come and spend time in such a good way, such a useful way. Today, of course, is the most important day of the year for those of the Christian faith and that we can be, in our own way, doing something that we also value, sharing with the Christian community something that is really important, is, a, is also a wonderful thing. It's, um, that the, the world's great faiths can be appreciative or of, of goodness and not dismissing the opportunity we have to recognize what we share. Again, as in all things, it's very easy to focus on the differences and uh, the places we disagree. But like in meditation, we, we don't want to overly emphasize dissonance. And to remember the context of goodness is, is really tremendously important. So there's uh, several questions have been offered this evening, and... Uh, I'd like to start with this one, which says, I have experienced quite similar situations during other retreats, where after one or two or three of what I felt as peaceful sittings, a sudden gust of emotions come flooding, either during the sitting or when listening to Dhamma talk. Tears would just roll. What I do is I try to continuously redirect my attention to the object of meditation, either the breath or awareness of the present moment. Sometimes, when that is too difficult, I try to radiate metta to myself. What is your advice? I suppose if whoever asked this question and I were talking with each other, I would ask whether the tears were associated with joy and gladness and happiness or whether they're associated with uh, pain and suffering. But I don't want to get into a dialogue and I don't think actually it really matters. There's still plenty here that we could talk about. And I would suggest that 
essentially it comes down to preparation that in a situation like this on meditation retreat there is going to be intensification with not sending the energy out through speaking through looking, through listening, through sensing outwards or for that matter with our thinking letting the thoughts just drift out and lose energy as we so easily do here we're turning the light of attention inwards and with this restraint there is going to be an intensification and so anything can happen you know, all sorts of things surprising, irrational, unreasonable unexpected can happen and so to be ready for that to be ready for the unexpected is important and come into a situation like this and we don't have to understand it that's also very important uh, the kind of conditioning that probably all of us have been subjected to uh, gives tremendous value to being rational and reasonable just before the meeting this evening I was talking to somebody about how utterly irrational <laughs> somebody was being and uh, we can get addicted to being rational and reasonable and that doesn't help because we, you know, in meditation as we start to let go of the structures of self these sankharas, these mental formations of, of meanness that have up until now been our source of security as we start to release out of these, there's an energetic dimension to that. It's not just a psychological thing. It's not just a, a mental activity. You know, that's a whole body-mind phenomena. And self is, is powerful. And this meditation is powerful. And as the self-structures start to dissolve out of their frozen rigidity and start to flow we're going to feel it in our whole body mind and sometimes who knows maybe sometimes you start laughing and then halfway through this uh, incredible sense of joy and delight it can just turn into tears and it can seem thoroughly irrational and unreasonable but we don't have to, in my experience, we don't have to understand it. We don't have to try and make sense of it. Sometimes it's just rebalancing. That's how I see it. Sometimes it's just, just energy is rebalancing. However, this question also implies that, that it's, it's a source of some difficulty and, and it's like getting lost in, in the tears. And so once again, coming back to uh, the theme of preparation, uh, We don't want to wait until we have intense reactions, whether it's intense joy or intense sorrow, or intense grief or intense anger. Uh, the wise thing to do is to prepare ourselves well in advance. I mentioned the other day the example of going mountain climbing, and of course we 
prepare ourselves well in advance before we go on such a journey. And likewise with the spiritual journey, we prepare ourselves, if we're wise, well in advance before we get too far out on the journey. That's why when we send the form out to people who are going to come on retreat, we ask them, have you done retreats before? Because it's helpful to know. And on a on a week-long retreat or a 10-day retreat, probably we wouldn't accept anybody who hadn't done some sort of uh, brief retreat beforehand or didn't have a formal meditation practice going. And also, in traditional cultures and previous times, it was also very well understood that before you entered a monastery or into a retreat situation that you would have been somebody who had prepared yourself by keeping uh, moral precepts with commitment for an extended period of time. Now, that's not always true for, for all of us. I, I know when I first entered the monastery, I, I'd been far from impeccable <laughs> up until I entered the monastery. And, and there were others much worse than me. Their eyes were virtually falling out when they fell through the temple gates. <laughs> and then we intensify the mind with these powerful techniques and and no wonder we have strange things happening. So keeping moral precepts is part of preparation. What we do when we keep moral precepts, we're not just being uh, nice people and, and safe people to be around, that's true, but what we're also doing, little by little, every time we exercise restraint with regards to, to action of body and speech, what we're doing is we're slowly constructing a container. It's a container, like a psychic container. If we exercise restraint, the impulse comes up to say something hurtful and we say no to ourselves. Just like last night, saying parents saying no to children, setting a boundary, and the children develop as well as a result. If it's set in the right way, at the right time. Likewise with ourselves, there's the impulse to let something out, something heedless come out, and we just say no to ourselves. And little by little, we, we learn to trust in that boundary. That we, it, It's a self-trust, a, a sense of self respect or dignity in the truest sense of that word and it's a wonderful asset in practice when we have self-trust, self-respect it is like a container we feel these upstrusts of energy wild energy, unruly energy wanting to hurt wanting to get wanting to run away if we've prepared ourselves well in advance with through the keeping of the moral precepts, then there is a sense of self-respect, self-trust, which is, is very important. Many people misunderstand this aspect of the teaching about restraining oneself with regards to sexuality and, and use of drugs and, and so on. It's not about just being, as I said, a nice person or somebody who's socially acceptable. There's a psychic law. There are psychic laws that govern this process if there isn't a container, you know, just like if the earth's crust becomes cracked and weak, then all that molten lava comes up. And you know what a volcano's like. It might be beautiful from a geological perspective, but if you're living on the island, it's not much fun. It's disastrous. And if we have volcanic eruptions uh, when we're not ready for them, then the, uh, the consequence is not much fun. So preparing ourselves in advance uh, for intensification, whether it's the intensification that comes through a retreat in a situation like this, 
or the intensification that's going to come to all of us at some stage of life when we're faced with great loss within ourselves, losing our own health or part of our body or losing a loved one. There will be intensification at such times. Whatever the conditions that trigger the intensification, we will have to handle it and we need to prepare ourselves in advance, not to wait until such times happen. So moral precepts is one way of doing it, building a container. And, and also, as Ajahn Abhinanda mentioned in his talk last night, learning to cultivate a vast awareness. Sometimes we can pursue our meditation practice in, in, in the way that we, we've learned to pursue worldly efforts, where we, we just focus, drive, and just try and give, get the goal. Let's be a fighter, kind of. Berlusconi attitude. <laughs> For the Italian's benefit here. <laughs> he still hasn't given up, by the way. He's, he's still fighting. Uh, it's just not clever. You know, the, there is a time to give up fighting. Uh, just being overly willful and, and fighting for the goal. Yes, uh, definitely virya effort is, is, uh, is important, but not this fighting that's coming from a willful place of I'm going to get my desired object come hell or high water. Mm. If we do pursue our spiritual practice with that kind of that kind of effort, yeah. struggling to to reach the goal, and, uh, what we're doing is building up stress within our our whole body mind, mm. and so we don't approach practice just being willful and focused and determined, but with a, a vast field of awareness that's allowing, that knows how to allow, that knows how to receive, that knows how to lose. Yeah. We're not going to win every battle that we encounter. Yeah. Learning how to lose is very important. And if we have a vast field of awareness, then we can learn from winning and losing. And this vast field of awareness is, is not just a mental exercise. This vast field of awareness is it's a whole body-mind experience. And so this is another area of preparation that's very important to cultivate. We're serious about our spiritual practice. There are going to be periods of being tested, whether it's upthrusts of emotion, and tears of joy or sorrow for that matter, or anger or fear or worry. If we've prepared ourselves with a vast field of awareness that doesn't even just finish with this body, but we, we expand, which is sit meditation, imagining, visualizing the whole context that we're sitting in, the environment that we're sitting in. And, and this helps enormously in maintaining right perspective. Yeah. This person who asked the question says that sometimes they return to the meditation object, the breath or the present moment, and sometimes they work with radiating loving kindness. Now these things might work, and, but also sometimes that when we do this, it's still the exercise of focusing. And you know, the more you focus, the more intense it's going to get. And it sounds like you've already got enough intensity. So what you might try, and what I suggest is that instead of trying to do anything, be willing to release out of doing. 
take a deep breath and just say, be aware, be vastly aware. Feel like, imagine you're filling this whole Dhamma hall with your awareness. It's an exercise of the mind. We can, we can experiment with this and see what the result is. But certainly, certainly I would suggest releasing out of anything to do with your mind and come back to the body. Come back into the body awareness. Feel the whole body. It can feel like, you know, when there's stuff going on in the mind, it can feel like I've just got to look at this a bit further, a bit longer, a bit deeper, a bit more focused, and I'm going to sort it out. But meanwhile, Mara is just loving all this attention. It's just getting off on it big time. If you want to just try, just try just pulling the plug on Mara. Just don't give Mara anything to feed with. Just come straight back to this this body, this coarse body, sitting here with painful knees and painful shoulder, painful neck, whatever you've got. We're nearly all over 50, so you must have some aches and pains somewhere. <laughs> You're sitting for three days. And, <laughs> and this, this, this actually is very interesting. I'm not going to say too much about what happens because then you just imagine what happens. And, and that's no good. That doesn't help. But what happens... This is the, the thing to find out. What happens when we refuse to follow the mind and come back to the body? That's worth looking at. Yeah. It's really to exercise awareness in this way. And so the preparations, I think, uh, are, really, are really, really important. Uh, at the time when, when something like this happens, well, then I would say, first thing to do is just really come back to the body. Come back to expand your field of awareness. Feel like, imagine the space that your body is sitting in as well and see if that helps you uh, somewhat. But more than that, uh, outside of formal meditation, paying attention to preparation, these different aspects of, of uh, how we can find nourishment, as I was saying on the first night for our spiritual practice, like being aware of goodness, not taking sides with goodness, not becoming good. Becoming good is really embarrassing. We don't need that. Yeah, but learning how to how to appreciate the energy of goodness, how nourishing it can be in all areas of our life. I was reading a report on, um, I think they call it the happiness quotient or something like that. They do this happiness test on British people every year. And this was the happiness quotient, 2006. Guess what? Florists and hairdressers are happier than solicitors and pharmacists. <laughs> Big surprise. <laughs> now, I wonder why that is. I wonder why florists and hairdressers are happier than solicitors and pharmacists. Well, the analysts of this, this research said that they thought it was because Florists and hairdressers tend to engage in more socialising in their job. Mm. <laughs> well, what about the fact that they're focusing on beauty? Yeah, what about the fact that the florists and hairdressers are just focusing on beauty all day long? Mm. Well, we also, we, you know, you don't have to be a florist or a hairdresser, but we can focus on beauty, like the beauty of, of, of lovely speech. Or, or the beauty of patience, 
When you're being patient with your mother on the telephone, if your mother's being unreasonable yet again, or it's, maybe it's not your mother, maybe it's your father who you have trouble with. Yeah. <laughs> or your children, maybe it's your children that you're having to be patient with. Being patient is beautiful. And there's all sorts of things that we, we can do, and, and I'm sure we do do, in our life that is really beautiful. And this, whenever we exercise generosity, restraint, kindness, and this is, this is a beauty that we can focus on. All the practical things that we do, and you, know, you know, like, I think, just writing an email myself, I, I get emails from people just, you know, just don't even say hello. They just start kind of rattling on with their problem that they want me to deal with. Yeah, and they don't even sign off properly, just, you know, see ya. No, I think myself, if you're going to communicate with somebody, you want to do it beautifully. So I always start my letters, good morning, or my emails, good afternoon. But whatever we do, we do. And the things that we do in the house, you know, making the house beautiful. When we build this monastery here, Ajahn Epinanda and I go down to the retreat house and we talk about the shape of the rooms and the proportions and the and you know, what kind of wood we're going to use on the banisters, on the staircase, so that we can make it beautiful, so that when people come here on retreat, they hold the banisters and they have a beautiful experience. And now, some people say, oh, what a waste of time. You just, you just whack it up, get it done. And Well, if we don't pay attention to the things we do, when people experience these things, the consequence of our actions, well, they feel a lack of attention. Mm-hmm. When you wrap up a present for somebody... We try to make it beautiful, don't we? Because we want the person to enjoy it. Well, this paying attention to beauty has um, a real benefit. Somebody came here, one monk came here once, this monastery, he said, oh, I couldn't live here, it's too beautiful. I said, oh, well, whatever, I mean, people are different. I, I don't think this place is too beautiful. I mean, it's, it's reasonably beautiful, but it's not too beautiful. And I know what too beautiful is, and it's, and it's not like this. It's a, this is just balanced and agreeable. And then they say, well, you know what the Buddha said about bonds of, of habits of craving and delusion are, are strengthened by those who heedlessly dwell on objects of desire. We should be all meditating on corpses. We should have a skeleton hanging up in the Dhamma hall. We were talking about this at breakfast the other day, whether we should hang a skeleton up in our Dhamma hall. And I think here he said we put it in the reception room. So, not in the Dhamma Hall. I don't know. I mean, how many people think we should have a skeleton in here? There's one in the front. I knew you would say that. I knew you would say that. <laughs> so there's one person out of 30 here who's mature enough in their practice that they can turn towards things that are repulsive and focus on. And that's fine. I'm, I'm really happy if you can do that. But... I'm not sure that all of us are so resplendent with our appreciation of beauty, inwardly and outwardly, that we need to be focused on, on ugly things. That a time can come, and probably does come, in spiritual life for all of us, where we do need to be able to look at the ugly side of life, the things that we see as ugly, like old age, sickness, death, you know, pain, these things. This is, this is an important aspect of life. But we need to make sure we're ready for it. And if we're not ready for it, 
then the mind can get sucked into negativity and make the situation worse. So heedlessly dwelling, as the Buddha said, heedlessly dwelling on objects of desire, that's unskillful, that's definitely unhelpful. And some people would say that Ajahnandu spends far too much time trying to make the monastery beautiful. They might be right, I don't know. I don't think that I actually try to make the place beautiful. I just feel that if you're going to do something, you should make it beautiful because people are going to come into it and and it helps. Now, if things are intensely, sensually beautiful, that's different. But if you can come into a place and you just feel at ease and feel quietened and feel drawn inwards and stilled and supported in your contemplation, I think that's helpful. I think that's skillful. So this is another way of finding nourishment for our practice and preparing ourselves. If we learn to recognize how dwelling on beauty, not in a heedless way, but dwelling dwelling on beauty in a skillful way, whether it's external beauty or internal beauty, beautiful acts of body and speech and mind, these are ways of uh, preparing ourselves for the intensification that will come. So I think um, hopefully that's useful for the person who asked this question. And then there's another one which is related, which says how to find the balance between acceptance, endurance and determination when encountering unpleasant sensations like pain and discomfort. So the balance between accepting and enduring and determination when there's pain and discomfort and this of course also applies in formal meditation and in daily life practice in formal meditation just how much pain should I put up with when should I move in daily life situations the circumstance that we're living in or the people we're living with how long should we take it before we do something how do I know when I'm ready to act, or in meditation when I'm ready to move. The first thing that comes to my mind when I read this question is, don't know. That's the truth, isn't it? When you, you feel like, should I, should I endure, should I exercise aditana paramita? Like the Buddha, I will sit here until my blood dries up and my bones break or I'm enlightened. That's something like what the Buddha said. And you could exercise that determination. But maybe you're not ready for that. Maybe you haven't got the paramitas of the Buddha. The Buddha had all the ten paramitas perfectly developed. So he had a lot of strength already there in his practice. Maybe we don't have so much. Maybe we'll just ruin our cartilage. Don't know. If I move now, maybe I'm just going to revert back to my heedless habits of indulgence. This is Maybe this is the very time when I should just push a little further. I've built up some good energy so far in my meditation. I just need to endure a little bit. Of, but maybe I'm going to ruin my health. Maybe I'm just being willful. Don't know. Is there anything wrong with not knowing? Is there anything wrong with not knowing? It feels wrong. 
I find it feels wrong. I find, I find it, you know, after all these years of clearly not knowing what I'm doing, <laughs> most of the time, <laughs> I still find it exceedingly difficult to admit that I don't know. However, when I do admit the fact that I don't know, it's wonderful. And it's like the I that doesn't know and never did really know, only imagined it knew, ego I, personality I, is not a source of security. So when I can admit that I don't know, and that's a fact, that's truth, that's Dhamma, when I admit that I don't know, then there's a sense of being here with truth, with reality. And there's nothing wrong. It's wonderful to not know. So I think it, it's, uh, it's really a sign of how much ego feeds on the power of being able to control that makes it difficult to let go of the idea that I know. The ego really likes to think that it can control. And it controls through knowing, well, what it thinks is knowing. Based on our memory from the past, I know myself. I really pride myself on self-knowledge. If you want to insult me, the best thing to do is insinuate. Don't have to tell me, just hint that I don't know myself very well. But I suggest that when we come across something like this, when it's clearly, blatantly obvious that we don't know, that that's the place to start. And to experiment with this. Again, I don't want to rob you of the experience by trying to tell you what it's like. But when we don't know, then just to admit it. And to feel the resistance. When I say suggest that maybe we feel the fact that we don't know, then maybe think, well, that sounds like a good idea, and so then you try to do it. I'm not suggesting you try to do it. Do it rather, listen to it, listen to what we're suggesting, and then just see if it fits, see if it's true, and then see what happens. And if there's resistance, you feel the resistance. Being honest with the resistance. And that's why, to me, that's why I find it feels so good to admit that I don't know. Because it's simply honest. It's just true, that's all. And there's a certain sort of creativity becomes available. An intuitive understanding. I don't need to push myself through this anymore right now. This is not the time to push. So you move. No regrets. Or maybe there's the intuition says, yeah, you can stick with this for a while. And my feeling is that you can trust this. It's not coming from personality, from me who thinks he knows what he's doing. When I'm meditating from a place that I think I know what I'm doing, it's very, very limited. But if I meditate from a place that actually honestly admits that I don't know what I'm doing, there's much more space. And mine seems much more creative. It doesn't feel so sure, though. And if I like to feel sure, then it's not so much fun. 
But we do need to get used to the idea that actually we can't be sure about hardly anything. The only thing we can be sure about is that we're going to die. So I think that's all I want to say on that question. Let me know you get on. (laughs) And the last question says, does awareness die? I think that's what it says. It looks like, does awareness ole? (laughs) Ajina Vinanda, who's very fluent in Spanish and Italian, several other languages, says that this means, does awareness die? So, it depends, I would say, it depends what sort of awareness we're talking about. If we're talking about the truth-discerning awareness that the Buddha spoke of, satipanya, that awareness that has been tried and tested and matured over time, then I would say that this awareness is the awareness that we can have faith in, is what the Buddha referred to as the deathless awareness, amatatamma. When Ajahn Chah was uh, falling ill, and I'm not sure whether it was before or after he had his brain surgery, but he said he could tell that his faculties were fading and that he would say things that he didn't mean to say. He knew what he wanted to say, but he opened his mouth and something else came out. But he said, it's not a problem, because there's awareness of what's going on. And I find that so helpful to remember that. Because any of us who've seen people who are getting old and infirm, even people who are very well established in practice, as they start to approach death, the faculties fade, including the nervous system. But if behind that there's an awareness which knows, oh, this is what's happening, if there's a truth-discerning awareness, awareness that has been informed with reality, then I don't think we have to worry about it. You know, the body's like this, the body's just falling apart. And if we can contemplate this well, like this, well, then that's the, I find that's a, a huge encouragement for practice. Because we all know what it's like to lose awareness. We've all got a sort of common and garden variety awareness, which is sort of good enough for doing your shopping without you know, making too many mistakes. Or driving on the right side of the road. You know, you know if in this country you drive on the left-hand side of the road, if you, you go to France or... Spain, you drive on the right-hand side of the road. So that's, you can have enough awareness to do that, but that's not the safe awareness that the Buddha was referring to as a true refuge. When the Buddha was described as having maha sati, or great mindfulness, great awareness, I understand that to mean that his awareness was so realized, so matured, so free from distortions, that it was never distorted. For us, the habits of clinging... I mean, the Buddha could cling if he wanted to. He was clinging before he became the Buddha. But he didn't cling. He saw the consequence of clinging, so all clinging ceased. So there's no distortions. But for the rest of us, there's still clinging, and so our awareness is distorted. When I lived with Ajahn Tate, he used to say that uh, in the chanting that 
we do in the evening, talking about the qualities of the Buddha, talking about the Arahant, Arahato. And when it's translated into Thai, they say, Pu Glai Cha Kile. Pu Glai Cha Kile, which means somebody or one who is far from defilements, far from the Kilesas. And Ajahn Tate used to say, Man Mai Glai Taulai, Man Yang Glai Lagun, which means actually the Arahant's not far from defilements, he's really close up against them. But he knows them so well that he doesn't grasp them. So for us, the reason our awareness is unreliable and gets distorted is because of the habits of clinging. It's something we're doing. We disfigure awareness through grasping, through heedless habits, through not understanding the consequence of grasping. We still hold to this body as mine. But it's quite clear it's not. I mean, you clip your fingernails and that's not me in the rubbish bin. Mm -hmm. Or your skin falls off all the time and... Or in my case, you lose your teeth. You haven't got any teeth. And, yeah. Bits and pieces of the body that are always falling off. Your hair goes and you know you can cut some of your organs out, but you're still here. Yeah. So the body's not me, and yet we still hold on as if it is me. Well, as I said in that verse earlier on, the Buddha said, the habits of delusion and grasping are strengthened if we hold heedlessly to objects of desire, verse from the Dhammapada. We have habits of holding heedlessly to objects of desire ever since we were born. You know, objects of desire, we grasp onto them, and only when we're given the teaching that actually holding on to objects of desire causes suffering. We need to hold lightly and relate consciously to objects of desire, not grasp at objects of desire. Only when we hear that teaching can we start to do something about it. But by that time, we've all developed lots of really strong habits. And even the best of us can carry these habits around for years and years and years. But from a practice perspective, we need to learn that holding to these objects of desire increases the sense of me. Whether it's mental objects of desire, like I want to become more happy, or even I want to become enlightened, or whether it's physical objects of desire... I want a new car or whatever. The grasping, rather than making us happy, what does it do in terms of reality? Not just telling ourselves, oh, we shouldn't grasp, because the Buddha said it's a bad thing to do. What does grasping do? Grasping effectually, effectively limits our awareness. It creates a limitation of experience. You remember holding to something, and this is, this, again, this is not a doctrine, it's something to look at in meditation. What does it feel like when we impose this limitation on ourselves in meditation? And we do it habitually, all the time, you know, based on my memories. And these are my memories, my memories, my memories, my memories, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my country, my gender, my, my history, my exam results my confirmation certificate, my blah, 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 all these things that, that, I'm, that have created this me, that is, what is it? It's nothing, it's nothing other than a habit of imposing limitation on awareness. And what's the experience of that? What's the experience of these limitations we impose on awareness? But the sense of restricted being. And how does it feel like? 
Well, it feels like when the intensity comes up, whether it's the intensity of joy or the intensity of sorrow or the intensity of worry or the intensity of fear or the intensity of angry, anger, what does it feel like? It feels like, I can't handle it. And then the tears start to come out. And then the words start to come out. And all, if you're really heedless, well, then sometimes the energy comes out and you thump somebody or you kick the dog or something. What is that? That's the experience of I can't handle this anymore. In terms of reality, the experience of I can't handle it anymore is coming slap bang up against the limitations that we impose on awareness. The Buddha never had that experience, not from the time he was enlightened onwards. Up until that point, of course, he had the experience, like the rest of us, the experience of limited being, limited awareness. So... Whether awareness dies or not, it depends on what sort of awareness we're talking about. I would suggest that the common and garden variety awareness that we're operating out, operating out of a lot of the time is not reliable and uh, will die. But the kind of awareness that the Buddha was talking about is a safe refuge, you know, satipanya, truth-discerning awareness, that, that the awareness that has been tried and tested in the context of reality that when, we, that when we face suffering, when we face the consequences of our habits of grasping, we don't just say, oh, I shouldn't be grasping, or they shouldn't have done this to me. We just say, here is the point where I'm imposing limitation on awareness. Of course the body's going to get old and die. That's the most natural thing. Of course we're going to experience loss, sorrow, sadness. This is normal for all human beings. Fear, worry, anxiety, and doubt. There's no human being that's been born and doesn't have these experiences. This comes to all of us. But when I feel like I can't handle it, that is the very point where we experience the consequence of the limitation that we place on awareness. And so when such things happen, actually that's a good thing. And that's, that may sound silly, and certainly it's not something you want to tell somebody too carelessly if they are right at that point, you know, it, can, it can be very convincing when we're feeling deeply, inherently limited. When we're caught on something, it can feel eternal, like eternal hell. Or if we're locked into bliss, it can feel like eternal heaven. And likewise, you try to talk to some blissed-out evangelical fundamentalist, and you, you can't tell them that you know, you're locked into a and a limitation that you're imposing on awareness. <laughs> Don't think they'll listen to you. <laughs> However, in our own experience, uh, I, would, I would recommend that, that when we do get to the point of, of feeling limited, that we don't jump to conclusions and blame ourselves or blame others. We say, all right, welcome. Welcome. Even limited being is something we want to welcome. Please teach me what I need to learn. So I think that's enough for this evening. Thank you very much for your attention.